Today's scripture comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed out loud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the word of the Lord. No such thing as not worshipping? Everybody worships? And the only choice we get is what to worship? It didn't ring true to me because I thought, I know lots of people who don't worship anything. They're not religious. They don't go to church. They don't go to a temple. And as far as I can see, they don't believe in any God. So as far as I can see, they don't worship anything. The problem is that I didn't understand what Foster Wallace meant by the word worship. You see, to me, having grown up in church, worship meant praising like we did here just a few moments ago. Worship to me was limited to singing and, and praying to some God. Or depending on the tradition, it could mean lighting candles or lighting incense or bowing or chanting certain words. That's worship. Only it's not. At least that's not what worship is limited to. So what does worship really mean? To worship something simply means to see it as worthy of our utmost devotion. You, you see, you worship something when you care about it more than you care about other things. The things you worship are, are the things that drive you. They're the things that motivate you. Think of it this way. The, the things you want so bad that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get them because you value them above all else. Those are the objects of worship for you. See, it's much bigger than just singing or lighting incense or praising. The things you worship, you, you care about them so deeply, in fact, that they rule over you. They have power over you, these things do. And, and the fact is that it that thing that you're worshiping, that's, that's ruling and controlling you, it can be anything. Anything. L let me give you an example. Ten years ago, Michael Jordan was inducted into the National Basketball Association's Hall of Fame. And on such an occasion, one gives a speech. And Jordan gave a memorable speech that day. He, he talked about what basketball meant to him and, and how he was able to become such a great champion. Frankly, if you listen to the speech, you'll, you might find that he comes off sounding arrogant. He comes off sounding petty. But it's towards the end of that speech that you really start to get a sense of this man's heart, and you really start to understand him. Because towards the end of that speech, he says this, quote, As I close, the game of basketball has been everything to me my refuge, 
my place that I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. It's been a source of my intense, the most intense feelings of joy and satisfaction. End quote. Now, as you listen to that, here's what I thought when I listened to that. That's the language of worship. It it sounds religious almost. In in fact, in a place like this in church, you might expect someone to speak that way about Jesus. It's how the Psalms, many of the Psalms sound. Oh, Lord, you are my refuge. Oh, Lord, my peace. You alone give me true joy. You alone truly satisfy. It's the language of devotion to God, only he's talking about basketball. And if you hear it in the context of that whole speech, you realize that that at a deeper level, it's not even basketball that he's really worshiping, at least not ultimately. You see, he is worshiping basketball because it's his source of peace. It's his source of satisfaction from, it's his refuge, he says. But the fact is that there's something deeper. Something he loved even more that drove him and controlled his life. And it comes across through the rest of his speech. And you realize that this guy loved competition. Competition. He, he thrived on competition. But then you realize there's something even deeper than that as he's talking. And you find that it's not so much the competition. It's, it's winning that he loved. You see, that's what really motivated him to accomplish everything he did. Winning. The feeling of victory. Competition was just the means to winning. And basketball, it just happened to be the arena in which he competed so that he could win. It could have been something else. It could have very easily have been baseball for Michael Jordan. Later on in life, it became golf and poker and business. It didn't matter, really, you see, because the goal, the, the object of worship for him was victory. And he'd do anything necessary to get the feeling that that gave him. You see, Jordan, like us, is a worshiper. And the object of his worship ruled him. It shaped his entire life. And we are not very different. None of us is. In fact, that's what Daniel 3 shows us. This, this narrative here, it, it's such a great narrative. It, it's, it's filled with suspense and so much drama, and it, the details are, are stirring. It's amazing. But what this, this narrative does here in Daniel 3 is it contrasts the worship of God, the true God, with the worship of idols. And by the way, that's what the Bible calls anything else other than God that we might worship. It's an idol. And Daniel 3 shows us what it looks like to, to break free from idols so that we can live lives that, that are ruled by something better, something that's actually worthy of our worship. So I invite you to pray with me as we jump into this narrative. Lord, we need you to awaken us to our own idolatry. We we confess that we're so comfortable in the way that we live and so comfortable in the things that we pursue and the things that drive us and motivate us, they they operate in such a way that we're often unaware of what they are. We don't realize what we're worshiping. So, Lord, we need you to awaken us, to illumine our hearts and show us not only the idols of our heart, Lord, we need you to show us yourself so that we can get a glimpse of how glorious and good you are so that all of our worship will be directed towards you. We ask that you do this by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first half of the book of Daniel, it's filled with these series of episodes. And in each episode, these Hebrew young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they face these major challenges. Their lives are put at risk again and again. And and remember, they are living in exile. This is not home. It's home for them now, but it's not where they grew up. They were abducted from their home of Judah, and they're brought to Babylon, along with many other Jews. And so these narratives, they were written and preserved by God to encourage God's people while they were in exile, to help them survive 
and thrive in exile. So this episode in chapter 3, it does at least two things for God's people who are in exile. For one thing, it shows God's people how to deal with suffering and persecution. And we're really going to look at that next week. Not today, but next week when we get to the second part of the chapter. But the other thing this narrative does is it teaches God's people, the ancient Hebrews and us, it teaches us about idols and idolatry. And it's meant to help us become conscious of the idols we're tempted to worship so that we can destroy their power over us. So we're going to answer a few questions as we walk through this narrative. And the first question is this. All the questions are in your bulletin, by the way. Here's the first one. What's an idol? What's an idol? If you remember, at the end of chapter 2, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they were all promoted. King Nebuchadnezzar gives them these awesome positions, and he even praises their God. But here in Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar is no longer praising the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He's not praising the God of the Hebrews, the true God. Instead, he's raising up this image, this statue, and he's telling his people to worship that. And it's not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising to us because there were many gods in the Babylonian culture. And so it's kind of to be expected that on the one hand, Nebuchadnezzar would be willing to praise the God of the Hebrews and at the same time praise these other gods. It's kind of the way people rolled religiously at that time. You praise many gods. Why not? Cover all your bases. Nebuchadnezzar worshipped other gods too. In fact, there's a, there's a, in this slide here, um, this image is actually an image of a, it's a section of a, a wall that was excavated and found that surrounded Babylon. Or actually, it didn't surround Babylon, but this wall was at the gate of Babylon. It was this ornate, huge wall that Nebuchadnezzar had built at the gate to the city of Babylon. And on this this beautiful wall that was painted this, this deep blue color, he had these images of lions and other animals too. And each of these animals represented a god of the Babylonian culture. And so as you're walking into Babylon and you're going through this gate, you're being told these are the gods who protect this place. When King Nebuchadnezzar was inducted as, as king, we have record of a prayer that he prayed at his induction ceremony. Like Jordan, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, or when, like when a president is inducted or inaugurated, what happens? There's a speech that takes place. And in this case, prayers were lifted up as well. And King Nebuchadnezzar prays a prayer to one of his gods, a god by the name of Marduk. And he thanks Marduk. He praises him. He asks for him to provide and protect him. And now here in Daniel chapter 3, we just see one more image of another god going up, being lifted up on this plain of Durham before the people. This image, we don't know if it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It may not have been, probably wasn't. But it was an image of something. And what we know is that it represented Nebuchadnezzar's power. It tells us here that it was it tells us the measurements of the statue, and it tells us in cubits. I don't know about you. I, I can barely use metric. I have no idea what cubits are. I only know because the commentaries tell me, but I don't use them regularly. But here's what this means. This, the, if, if, we were to trans, you know, if we were to kind of translate this into measurements that make sense to us, this statue is about 90 feet tall by about 9 feet wide. I'm going to show you an image here that gives you a sense. That's about 90 feet tall there. This is a, a, an image uh, of, of a Buddha in... Thailand. It's actually the biggest um, Buddha statue in Thailand. It's about 90 feet tall, and you can see how small those people are next to it. There's another image here that gives you another angle on just how big that image is. That's what 90 feet tall looks like. That's what the size of this image that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. And on this inauguration day, this, this day when they're, 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 he's, he's introducing this image to his people, he tells everyone to worship. And really what he's telling them to do, in a sense, is to worship him. Because this statue served to represent 
the king's power, the king's authority. Now, how do we know this? Well, one of the reasons we know this is because as you read through Daniel chapter 3, you may have noticed just how many times men read the word Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar set up this image. It was the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, and Nebuchadnezzar commanded the people to bow because it was the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. It was all about him. It was a huge day for him. We also hear repeated through this chapter the names of, of, of all these different officials who were there for this ceremony. All these different uh, uh, government offices were represented there. All the powerful people in Babylon were there for this event. And then there was a symphonic orchestra there as well. There was lots of instruments. He lists the instruments for us, the narrator does. And what he's doing for us is giving us a sense of just how big of an event this all was. And you can picture Nebuchadnezzar looking out at this from his palace, perhaps, or maybe from there on the ground, and he sees everyone bow. Imagine the king looking out at that and thinking, this is my kingdom. These people belong to me. That's my image. And look at everyone falling down to honor it. It says in verse 7, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You know, that those words, they sound eerily like something you would read uh, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, it tells us what it will look like when God's redeemed people worship Jesus Christ as king when he returns. It says in Revelation 7 verse 9, after this, I looked, and behold, this is a vision that the Apostle John had. He says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're worshiping every tongue, every tribe, every nation is worshiping Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy of worship. Here Nebuchadnezzar is staging a kind of copy of that. Only the image that's at the center that's being worshipped is him, his empire, his power. And King Nebuchadnezzar sees everybody bowed down, and of course, they need to bow down. They have no choice because in verse 6, it tells us that whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Immediately. Wow. It's fall down or burn. And this presents a problem, of course, for Shadrach and for Meshach and Abednego. There's no mention of Daniel here, by the way, and one of the reasons that commentators and scholars tend to, to think that that's because Daniel was, was stationed elsewhere. Daniel was working in the palace with, the, with Nebuchadnezzar. That's what Daniel chapter 2 tells us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had different kinds of responsibilities and were assigned to work along with many other government officials who all would have been at this event and told to bow down. In any case, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've got a problem on their hands because they know that their God has told them clearly not to worship anything else. It's very simple. It's, it's rule number one, right? It's commandment number one. God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have zero other gods before me. And then commandment number two, what does he say? He says, don't make any images. Don't bow down before images. Don't bow down before these structures and call them God and honor them. These young men would have known those commandments. In fact, they would have known that it's idolatry, it's worshiping false gods that got the Hebrew people thrown into exile in the first place. That's why they're here in Babylon, because they had forsaken God's commandment and had worshiped false gods. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't want to make that same mistake again as his people. He's already provided for them and rescued them more than once while they've been in Babylon. God has proven to them that he is the true God. He's already shown them that he's so committed to their good. How could they now bow down to this image? They can't, and they don't. And that, that gets noticed. Let's read from verse 8 of Daniel chapter 3. Verse 8, it says, Therefore at the time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, and they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar 
O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music. I wonder when they're like saying that, is Nebuchadnezzar like, yes, I know what's that. You don't have to read the whole list to me, right? You don't have to, I get it. I hired them. I know. In any case, they go through the whole list, and then he says, you've said that they shall all fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Again, Nebuchadnezzar's like, yes, I know, I get, I get it. Verse 12, but there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These men, O king, look what they say, they pay no attention to you. These guys knew how to push the, the king's buttons. They, they knew what the king really cared about, right? They, they knew where his insecurities were. And so they say, they pay no attention to you, king. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's likely that these Chaldeans, that these other people were, were, were motivated by jealousy. <laughs> and so they rat on these Hebrew boys, these young men. They're probably upset that they've got Jewish young men in, in high-ranking positions over them, perhaps. They feel kind of like they were slighted. These guys are getting the good jobs. So when time comes to snitch, they snitch. And they know their king very well. And that's why they're able to, to, to point out exactly what they know is going to get the king really angry. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they probably knew this would happen. And, and, and think about it, wouldn't it have been so easy for them to just go with the crowd and, and bow down? After all, it's just an image, right? It's not really a God. It's, this isn't really worship. If I just, I mean, in my heart, I could still be praising God and just bow down before this thing. It's just a physical action. It means nothing to me. And if it means nothing to me, then why can't I just do it? That's how they could have reasoned and rationalized, but they did not. Why not? Why was that really not an option for them? I once was in a, I think I've told you the story before, but I was once in a, in a cathedral with my, my boy, who was very little at the time, and we're walking through this cathedral, and he sees lots of statues of saints on the sides of this cathedral, and he says to me, he says, Dad, there are a lot of idols in here. And I was kind of distracted, and we were, we were going to a funeral, and I was, I was kind of distracted. And I said, I said yeah, man, there, there are, kind of not even really paying attention. And he goes, no, actually, Dad, I think I'm wrong. He says, they're not really idols unless you worship them. He says, my little son was right. They're not really idols unless you worship them. They're, they're just statues. And what makes something an idol is when you treat it as if it were God, right? If you value it, and you trust in it, and you obey it, and it controls you, then it's become a kind of God to you. It's an idol. So these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, could have just said, oh, this is just a statue, and I'm not really worshiping it in my heart. What's the big deal? It has no real power, but they did not reason that way, and they couldn't reason that way. Their conscience wouldn't allow it, and here's why. They knew that even if they didn't really love and, and worship this image, if they bow down before it, they'd still be worshiping something. They'd still be worshiping something. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Beneath this obvious idol, this huge statue, there is, as is often the case with all of our idols, there is a deeper idol underneath. Remember what I told you about Michael Jordan. He worshiped basketball, but it wasn't really basketball. It was competition. It wasn't really competition. It was, it was really that victory that he craved, winning. And really, we could probably plug in de uh, dig in deeper and see there's something beneath that even. It wasn't ultimately just victory that really motivated him. There's some reason that he loved victory. There's something embedded deeper than that, maybe. You see, the surface idol is often an indication that there's a deeper idol underneath. Now, if they had bowed, why would they have bowed? What would have motivated them to just say, you know what, no big deal. I'm just going to fall on my face before this idol. Why risk my life for something like this? What would have motivated them? Put yourself in their position. I would think, first thing I think of is fear. Fear would have motivated them. But fear of what? Fear of what? 
fear of death? Maybe what would have motivated them is a desire to just protect their own safety. So they bow down in order to just preserve their lives, preserve their own safety. So what's the idol there? It's not really that image, but what is it? It's, it's my safety. I need to sacrifice everything in order to preserve my life. My safety, my comfort is the thing that's motivating, controlling, and driving me. Or maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe it could have been something else. Maybe they say, you know what? It's not so much fear of death, but if we don't bow down, our careers are going to go down the toilet. So maybe there's a desire for, for career advancement, a desire for power, a desire. It's ambition. And so maybe the, 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 the idol underneath the idol is, is really ambition and the desire for influence and power. Or maybe it was something else. Maybe, maybe they say, if we, if we don't bow down here, what are these people going to think of us? We're already foreigners here. I don't need to stick out any more than I already do. And so in a desire to fit in, and a desire for the approval of the people around them, let's just bow down. You see, but the, the motives could have been different from every, for every single one of those three guys. And it could have been something other than what I've just mentioned. But the fact is that if they bowed down, they were, in fact, worshiping an idol. The idol of self-preservation and safety, the idol of power, the idol of approval and acceptance. They would have been giving themselves over to an idol. We're asking the question, what's an idol? And here's what we need to see. There are many surface idols that we can be serving in our culture. Here are some very obvious surface idols that we worship in our culture. Money, career, status. What else? Pleasure, respect. People become idols that we serve, right? Our friends become idols that we serve. We'll do anything to keep them. We'll do anything to appease them. Or to get better friends. Maybe grades. Grades are idle. We'll do anything we need to keep those grades up and to compete with this guy and do better than that classmate. Maybe beauty is an idol. I'll do what I can to look good. And maybe it's success in ministry, whatever that means. Any of those idols sound familiar to you? Are any of those idols attractive and, and present in your life? For instance, maybe you're sacrificing, and this is what idols often do. Idols require us to sacrifice good things in order to get them and appease them. So for instance, let's say you're sacrificing time with your family in order to get status and money and advancement. That's how idols work, right? You're sacrificing something that you love for something that you love even more. The advancement, the status, the money. Or, or you, you think about it this way, you sacrifice your conscience in order to keep your friends. Have you ever done something like that? And what are you saying there? I, I value my conscience, but I'm willing to sacrifice it if it means keeping these friends because they're so important to me. You sacrifice your spiritual well-being, even your health, in order to get the grades you want or the position you want. You see, all these things can rule you and make you sacrifice things that you shouldn't for them. But those are all surface idols. They're a means to get what we really want, and beneath them, there are deeper idols. If you want to read more about this whole idea, there, there's a, a great short book written by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. And in this book, Counterfeit Gods, I highly recommend it to you, he talks about some of these deeper idols that hide underneath the surface idols. I'll give you the, the common deeper idols that he offers. Let me share them with you. I've mentioned them in passing already, but I'll just lay them out for you, and we'll look at them up on the screen. Uh, one deep idol is, is comfort. Comfort. We, some of us, now we don't, we're not all driven by the same deep idols. and all struggle with the same ones, but, but, but here's a common one. Comfort. We want comfort. We worship it. We need it. And if we can't get it, then we can't be happy. And so when there's stress in our lives, 
that stress, it, it threatens our comfort. When there are demands placed upon us, it, it threatens our comfort. And we love our comfort so much that we have to do something to protect our comfort. And so what do we do? We don't want to be bothered. We don't want to be unsettled. And so what do we do? Sometimes we will disconnect from our problems and from other people. That's one way that people who are controlled by a comfort idol respond to problems. Just, just isolate yourself. Pull away. Shut down. Or maybe self-medicate. Food. Alcohol. Netflix. These are ways to, to escape and get back to my comfort place. I just want to be comfortable. Stop the noise. It's a deep idol. You might say, yeah, Netflix is my idol. Yeah, there's, a, there's an idol beneath that, and it's, maybe it's comfort. Here's another one, approval. Man, this is so kind of approval. So, so what threatens you if, you're, if your major deep idol is approval? One major threat to you is disapproval. You want to avoid disapproval at all costs. If you're living with this idol, then it's likely that you're often feeling fear and anxiety and shame, worry that other people won't love you, won't accept you. Now, here's the thing. We all want approval, and this is something we want to see about these idols. They're not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that we raise them up to a point where they become bad. That is, we desire them too much. We all want approval, and that's natural. In fact, we are made to receive God's approval. We, the desire to be affirmed is good. If you want your parents to affirm you, you should want that, and they should affirm you. But, but when that craving for affirmation becomes this controlling force in our lives, it's a problem, isn't it? We start to do anything we can to get approval. It's kind of like what Nebuchadnezzar did. We can't set up golden images, but we can, we can post images, selfies, and, and hope that they're going to get liked, <laughs> hope that they're going to get bowed to virtually. And, and we get angry when our images are not liked. We get angry when they're not, and we get worried, and we get fearful and anxious when they don't get liked. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? Or the fear of approval, that, that desire for approval, that idol, doesn't it also have the power to, to drive you to overcommit to things that you can't fulfill just because you don't want to say no because you're afraid that people will not approve of you if you say no? So, so you live a life that's harried and you, you lose a sense of even who you are because you're constantly trying to please other people. We've got to move faster. Here's another Idol, power, deep idol, power. If power is your deep idol, then, then, then you're, you, you want to win. You want to influence, and you're willing to manipulate others, and you're willing to use anger and guilt and threats to exert power over others or to get more power. You will use others. You see other people as, a, as competitors to you. You need to do better than them because you want to avoid losing, and so you're willing to hurt others so that you don't lose. And then fourthly is the last one, similar but a little different. It's control. A control idol that operates deeply in many of our lives. Your deep desire is, is to have discipline over yourself and control over your circumstances and control over other people. And what you fear more than anything is being helpless and not having control. And this leads you to worry. It leads you to be anxious when, when your circumstances change. You get angry with other people when they're not cooperating. You get angry at God when you realize that things are not under your control. You also may feel overburdened and overworked because you're just trying to, 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 to get a handle on things in your life because they feel so chaotic. Think about that surface idol. We mentioned before, it's an obvious one, money. You might say money's a problem for me. I worship money. Many of us do. But what's the deep, why, why are we worshiping money? What's the, what's the deeper idol? For some of us, maybe money's so important to you because you want control. You want control over your circumstances. You're scared. You're fearful that you won't be able to pay your bills. 
you won't be, afford, afford, be able to afford to send your ch- children to, to college. You're, you're worried that you won't be able to pay your mortgage. You, you just want to get a handle on things in your life. And so money, it's not that you're trying to be rich. You just want a measure of control. And if you can get your finances under control, you're at peace. For some of us, money is a, it's a comfort issue. We feel comfortable when there's money in the bank, when money's coming in. When money's not rolling in, we don't feel comfortable anymore. It's unsettling. It's troubling to us. And so we just want that troubling sensation to go away. You're not worried about amassing lots and lots of money. You just want to be comfortable. Maybe money's a power issue for you or control. I mean, a, a, uh, an approval issue. If I get enough money, my peers will approve of me. I won't look different from everyone else. I'll fit in. Or if I get enough money, then I will amass power to be able to do the things I want to do. You see how this, this very common counterfeit God in our culture actually can be the manifestation of many different deeper idols underneath. So what's an idol? It's what rules and controls you because you value it so much. It becomes a God to you. The second question, we'll move faster here and we'll finish up, but the second question here is, what are your idols? It's one thing to say, what are idols? But we really think, what are your idols? What are our idols? Because we're, we're often so unaware of them, right? We, we need, our consciousness needs to be raised. You might look at those four that I just gave you and say, yeah, I think I can check off all of those. <laughs> or maybe like, yeah, one of those maybe, or none of them really, I don't, you don't see it yet. There's some questions that I think are helpful to diagnose what our idols are. There are many out there. You can find some. Actually, you'll find some. If, if you read Counterfeit Gods, you'll see some. Here are some that I've found helpful for me. These are the ones that really hit home. Because some of these questions that I've read from other people, they don't always help me. These are the ones that help me. Maybe they'll help you. Here's one question. What are you willing to sacrifice for? What are you willing to sacrifice other things in order to get? Maybe that that's something that you idolize. Or, or here, here's another question. What motivates your decisions? Think about some of the big decisions you've made recently. What are the big factors that have motivated? What are the, 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 what's the drive behind those decisions? What were you trying to get when you made those big decisions recently? What was controlling those decisions? I'll give you some insight into the idols of your heart. Here's another question. This is a good one for me. How do you respond to trouble? What do you go to when there's trouble? Is your default, I want to get control of the situation. Is that the idol you go to, control? Or when trouble comes, the idol you run to is, I just want comfort. Just block this all out, pretend it's not happening, shut down, end the conversation, and isolate yourself. That kind of comfort idol. Or is it approval? Trouble comes, you say, "How how can I make this person that I'm in conflict with like me and approve of me? How can I make the tension go away and let this, per- how, how can I get this person to, to just embrace me again? Or maybe it's power. How can I exert power over the situation? How can I win? It's interesting. Everyone in this story is an idolater in one way or another. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow down. But if they're humans, then they struggled with idolatry too. They had to. And these guys who accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're idolaters as well. Why do they turn in these Hebrews? Why couldn't they just leave the Hebrews alone? Why? Because they, they wanted approval, maybe. Or because they wanted power. And they saw the way to do that would be to throw these three Hebrew guys under the bus. Nebuchadnezzar himself was obviously an idolater. If you read from 13 to verse 15, what do you see? He gets enraged by this whole thing. And why is he enraged? Because his power is being threatened? Because his control is being threatened? He's a worshiper of idols as well. And he doubles down on his idol here. It's helpful for us in one sense to think, and I encourage you to think about this actually, maybe as you, as you, um, maybe, uh, as you, as you uh, talk with your, your, your family and friends over the next few days, what are some of the idols that we see really predominantly in our culture? Someone has said that the idol that's underneath all idols is self. Selfism is the idol of our culture. If, if something feels good and I like it, 
then it can't be wrong. Because if it feels good and it pleases the self, then I need to feed and please the self. That's what my life is about. That's what I worship more than anything else is myself. Who's God in that situation? The self is God in that situation. Even if God's word says this is wrong, repent of it, we say, we say no, 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 but it feels good. I, I, it can't be wrong, God. There must be some communication problem here because clearly this is okay because the God of self is okay with it. Let me share this quote with you from Pastor Russ Moore. He's not a pastor anymore, but Russ Moore, who some of you may know. He's talking about some of the, um, the, the major uh, injustices in our world right now. And in the context, he's talking about the, the, these dual injustices of the, the, the killing of unborn children, abortion, and recently born children. And then he's talking about the injustice of uh, racism. Talking about both of them. Listen to what he says. He says, abortion culture and racial injustice are not two separate impulses, but they are one. He says, both are rooted in the counter-Christ idolatry that sees power as the standard of human dignity and of lives worth living. You see, he says whether you're, you're oppressing someone or hating someone or hurting someone or rejecting someone or treating them badly because of their race or if you're killing someone who has yet to be born or is just recently born, it's likely that you're motivated by the same idol. The idol's power. It, 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 it's the, it, it lifts up power to the point where it says, if you have the power to do this, then why can't you do it? Why not? Two manifestations of the same deep idol. And if this people group, this minority group, doesn't have the power to stop me, from oppressing them, then that's their problem. I have every right to use my power to oppress them. And if this child does not have the power, and, and there are not laws in place to protect this child, doesn't have the power politically, physically, socially to protect himself, then why can't I take the life of this child? After all, I'm the powerful one here. But I think it's too easy for us to point to idols in our culture it's a, whole thing, all other, it's a whole other thing for us to start to look more closely. Maybe look at our families. Look at our families. I want to encourage you towards, if, if you live with your family especially, to prayerfully consider, maybe have conversations with your family members. What, what are the idols that we worship in this household? It's safe to talk about that, I hope, right? Especially if you're all here, you're listening to the sermon. Let's talk about it. What, what are the idols? Get, parents, give your, give your kids the, the, the freedom to be able to tell you what they think your idols might be. They might be seeing, it's often easier to identify other people's, by the way, right? So like, they might, and they've been living with you for a while, so they might see some idols. And, and here, here's some questions for them to ask, like, for, for you to ask as a family, like, what are the things that control and drive our decisions? What are the things that we talk about a lot in this family because we care about them so much and we're willing to do almost anything to get them? What are the things that drive and control us as a family? What, what, like, th think about the priorities, right? Like, what are the things we really prioritize? And we're all going to be different. All of our families might be different. I grew, and your, your family of origin and even your ethnic and cultural background is going to play into that for sure. I grew up in a, in a Latin American household. I'm raising my children. My wife and I both are raising our children in a Latin American household. That's probably shaped a lot about what kind of idols we happen to worship and what kinds of things we're chasing and prioritizing and demanding of one another. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Latin American household, Latin American Christian household. Maybe you grew up in a very different kind of household. How do those cultural, ethnic, and other factors play into the idols that you're prioritizing? Don't assume that you already know what they are. I'm encouraging you to actually talk about this and pray over this and see, Lord, show us. Show us. Many of us live in suburban context, how does that affect the idols that we worship? It's funny, you know, the closer we get to home, the, the more uncomfortable it gets, because when we look at other people's idols, they look ridiculous to us. We're like, Nebuchadnezzar, seriously? Why do you care so much about this thing? You know, like, why does this matter so much? You know? 
Or like we look at someone else that cares so much about this thing, and we're like, that's so stupid. Why do you care so much? You know, like, why does the wall matter that much, the wall? Like, why, why are you always talking about the wall? Like, why does it matter, right? Why is it that big of a deal? But, but our own idols, they, they don't look so ridiculous to us. They don't look so absurd because we love them and we want to protect them and we want to serve them because we trust them and, and, and we fear losing them. Last question. What hope is there for worshipers? What hope is there for worshipers like us? Because we're all prone to worship idols. John Calvin once said, the heart is an idol factory. We just keep making more of them, right? We all want to worship counterfeit gods. And, and the thing is that what we need to realize is that in order to destroy these idols, we need to replace them with something better. We cannot simply destroy an idol and leave a vacuum because another idol will take its place. It's like the person who says, I'm going to quit smoking by, by you know, chewing the nicotine gum. That's great. That's helpful. But eventually, you're supposed to get off the nicotine gum, right? If you're going 30 years, you're still smoking the nicotine gum. You didn't give up. You didn't break your addiction. You just replaced one idol with another. You replaced one addiction with another, right? That's how often we deal with idolatry. We replace one with, a, with another one. And that's not what God wants. What God wants for us to do is to replace every idol in our life with the King Jesus Christ, the one who is truly worthy of worship. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do because they go speak to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you're supposed to bow, and you didn't bow. And what do they say? They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 16, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, listen, you're going to throw us into the fire. We realize that. But if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. You hear the, the confidence? He will rescue us. Look at verse 18. But if not, if he doesn't rescue us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set before us. You see, they trust God's power to save them, but they also trust God's wisdom, that if he chooses not to save them, that's okay too. They realize that there may be a very serious price that they have to pay for not worshiping their culture's idols, and yet they're willing to pay that price because they see that God is worthy alone of their worship. They respond by remembering who the true God is. So they look at this idol, and they look at the king, and they look at the furnace, and they look at their, their peers, and they're like, no, 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 no. There's a God who we worship who is bigger than all of this, and he loves us. He cares for us, and he welcomes us to worship him. And when we worship him, we receive blessing and goodness in return. When we worship these idols, all we get is more anxiety and more pain and more suffering and more disappointment. We must obey God rather than man, they realize, as Acts 5 says. And that's what they do. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this kind of supernatural power to bow down only to God is available to us. So we ask him for it. Ask him for it. And realize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they couldn't have batted a thousand. They certainly must have, in some cases, given in to idols of the heart. So what hope do we have when we fail and we give in to idols of the heart? What do we do? It's very simple, but I think what we need to do is confess that to the Lord. We need to come to God and say, Lord, I have worshipped this. And, and there's probably something even underneath that that I'm worshipping. Show me what that is. Help me to see what's motivating and controlling me. Help me to see what it is that I love more than I love you, Lord. Show me. And go to his word and go to community and together. Feast your eyes on who the true God is. You see, Jesus must loom very large in our life if we're not going to worship idols. Just like this idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up in the plain of Durham loomed large over that entire region, we need Jesus to loom even larger over us so that he dwarfs any of these other man-made idols in our life. We need to fill ourselves with truth about him so that all other idols look ugly and pathetic. Jesus Christ is not the kind of God who just is a, is a huge, cold monolith. No, Jesus Christ is the kind of God who, who takes human form and he 
becomes like us and he lives with us and he dies for us. He never worshiped an idol in his life. He, he walked to the cross perfectly righteous, only worshiping God alone. And yet he dies, he faces the furnace so that his perfect record of worship could become our perfect record of worship. How good is that? What kind of God is this? Let's keep turning away from idols, as 1 Thessalonians 1 says, turning away from idols to serve the true God. And when we fall, let's confess that to him and let's turn away again. One of the things I believe that keeps us from doing that is we fear losing our idols. We trust them too much. And so we need to confess these idols to the Lord. Lord, I care too much about comfort or power, whatever it is. I care too much about this, Lord. And I'm even afraid of giving up the things that provide me with comfort and power and, and approval. Lord, please, please show me that I don't need to fear giving up these idols and that I can't continue to serve them while I try to serve you at the same time. It doesn't work. I can't serve idols and God simultaneously. The Bible has a word for that. It's called adultery. It's spiritual adultery. So God calls us to leave aside these other loves and come to him. And when we do, he receives us and he empowers us to stay committed and to pursue him above all else. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are a mystery to us. We confess it. We don't know half the time what's motivating us. Help us, give us insight. Make us image conscious, Lord, conscious of what images we're serving. But more than anything, Lord, Turn our attention to you. Reorient us to your beauty and greatness and magnificence and love for us. Even as we come to this table, Lord, bring us to this table as confessors, confessing our idolatry, but also confessing that you alone are Lord. Amen.